Good morning. If you have a copy of the Bible in front of you, if you'd be turning to the second Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, and we'll begin there in just a moment. We are grateful that you are here this morning, thankful for the time of worship, just a wonderful chance to be together, especially to those who are visiting with us. We're thankful that you have come our way. As we've said, we'd love for you to stay with us for our lunch here in just a few moments, and also, if you can, for our 1.30 service. Uh, we will have Joey Farrell with us as he's been traveling around. Uh, he's shared on Facebook before on the Gospel of Christ website or on their Facebook page how much traveling he's been doing and tries sometimes as much as he can to hit different places on the same day, maybe in this area, uh, one place on Sunday morning, another place on Sunday afternoon. So we look forward to that. I know that many of you are, are extremely upset that you won't have to listen to me again. That's, I'm sorry about that. Uh, if you have any complaints, you can line up and see Charles Abels when we're done here in a minute. But uh, uh, now we look forward to having Joey report to us, and we hope that you can be back with us for that. Uh, our kids, uh, just a reminder, we will have Bible Bowl practice in between services as well. Try to cover uh, a chapter of uh, Ezra as we begin that study for our Bible Bowl. And looking forward to Lads to Leaders, as we've talked about already this morning. Uh, just thankful so much for the worship, for Charles and his leading us in these great songs. Uh, we're always thankful for Robert and his preparation and the time that he puts into and to leading us in that way. He let me know before service. I think he was kind of a, a short notice. Uh, let him know as uh, some folks are out being sick. Um, but it's just so encouraging as he always uh, causes us to think about uh, the, the death of Christ especially as we're focusing on that during the Lord's Supper. Appreciate Keith's prayer. I echo what he said about how thankful we are. I look outside, and this feels like about the 12th day in a row that it's been raining, uh, and just yucky to have to drive in, but I'm thankful to be here, have this place, to be with you, and for us to encourage ourselves with a few moments of study in God's Word this morning. It's been said, and if you have a bulletin in front of you and you have a copy of the outline, the, the quote is attributed to Martin Luther. It's been said that reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. Now, you may or may or may not have heard that before. You may or may not be shocked to have that attributed to Martin Luther. And many of the people who will use this against religious thoughts sort of, you know, are puffed up by thinking, oh, the, the great leader of the Reformation is the one who made this statement to boil it down that reason is an enemy of faith. But our question this morning is, is that true? Is that actually a true statement that reason is the greatest enemy that faith has? While Martin Luther's statement in context is not even really about the danger of examining the evidence or of thinking out one's faith, sort of reasoning, this statement has brought many atheists and it's brought many people who don't believe in God a bit of laughter, a bit of a chuckle when they see faith and reason as being diametrically opposed to one another. They laugh at this and they say, Martin Luther's the one that said that. Well, this is absolutely true. You cannot have reason and you cannot have faith and them go together. To them, this statement is completely, without a doubt, true. And that faith, our faith, really has much to fear from reason. That we would cower if someone who brings us some logical thoughts and wants to have this logical discussion. We would say, no, no, no. It's only this belief, this leap of faith that we rely upon. In fact, unbelievers have a long tradition of painting their position as the more reasonable one, as the more logical one. It's why they will sometimes be willing to have a bit of a debate or they'll be willing to talk about scientific things because they believe that they are the voice of reason, even though they are unbelievers. And assuming that they, 
Not believers, unbelievers will stand when the dust of any conflict settles. I know that debates are a lot less popular in a public kind of setting than they used to be. But at the same time, there is a lot of debate that goes on on the internet or on YouTube. I know one brother in particular who does a lot, lot of work, has a good website that I would recommend to you, but he is willing to go on YouTube and have these debates that are you know, either live streamed or recorded and then shared later. There's a lot of debate that is happening, and that's because a lot of unbelievers believe that they are standing on truth and reason and that they'll be the one to be left standing when the discussion is over. On the other hand, to be fair, sometimes Christians, or the opposite of unbelievers, but believers, sometimes Christians act in indefensible ways, right? It allows them to take even a further step in their strength because they'll look at Christians and they'll say, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be that. And certainly there are Christians who are hypocrites, some very strong hypocrites, some like us who maybe don't want to be, we try not to be, and yet we mess up. And people who are detractors will point that out and you'll say, they'll say, oh, well, you're just a hypocrite. But to be fair, yes, yeah, sometimes Christians don't act in the best ways. They're not very logical in how they behave. Now, when it comes back to Martin Luther's quote there, Martin Luther's quote in context, in the, the speech in which he said it, is a defense of the unbiblical practice of infant baptism. If you go and you do your research, and we don't have time this morning to, to dig into it, but the way in which he says this is a sermon dealing with a defense of infant baptism, even though that's not biblical. But listen closely, that reason is without a doubt the enemy, that's kind of the opposite, right? Reason is with the, without a doubt the enemy of any faith that does not arise from the word of God. Think about that in context of what we've already said. Reason is the enemy of any faith that does not arise from the word of God. See, any person who's claiming to have this blind leap of faith or, or just here's what I think and you can think what you want to think, that is faith. That is the enemy of reason because there's no logical reason behind it. It's not built upon the word of God. But I can tell you without a doubt that anyone who stands upon the word and studies it and knows it and practices it has nothing to fear from reason, has nothing to fear from debate. It's kind of that idea of when we live a life of lies or hypocrisy and someone comes calling and they call us on it, we do get a little nervous. We're a little unsure about it. But when we stand for the truth, we stand firm, we stand in truth, and we have nothing to fear from any kind of scrutiny. When people answer God's plea of Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, where God says, Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together. Why can God say that? Well, God is the God of all truth. I don't mean to draw him down to our level, but God has nothing to fear. He is truth. So he says, come now, let us reason. I want you to go through some reasonable, logical ways of thinking about things. So when people answer God's plea of Isaiah 118 there, they are now in the position to discover Jesus Christ and in him a faith as indisputable as God himself. Just as, our, just as the Bible paints that picture. If you had your Bible open to Psalm chapter 2, I would like for us to begin our main thoughts with reading this short psalm together. The victory that God allows mankind to share in Jesus Christ was prefigured in the second psalm. 
And let's notice together. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This second psalm allows us to see that God wants us to share with this truth, with this reason, with this firmness. The setting of this psalm, this second psalm, is one of a widespread conflict. Notice there again from the first couple of verses, nations, people, kings of the earth, and the rulers. But this conflict is these people who have set themselves against God and against his anointed. Now that anointed, that term frequently references a king in Israel. We see that not only here in the second Psalm, but also back in the book of First Samuel. I would like for you to hold your place here for just a moment and turn over to Acts chapter 4 because I want you to notice, as we should always do, places where scripture is used other times. This is going to be a theme of our lesson this morning, but David wrote this psalm, and one reason we know that is because in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, it is attributed by the speaker there, by the apostles there, those who are gathered, it is attributed to David. Acts 4:25, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. And notice verse the end of verse 25 and verse 26 is a quotation then of this psalm. So as David wrote this psalm, this probably references this setting, one of the many times that David faced opposition from the Gentile world. This psalm seems to be a response to a problem that is discussed as well in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16. Where Nathan is talking to David on behalf of God and Nathan says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise that is made here to David. 
However, the New Testament reveals that both of both those promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7, not only that, but also the second psalm, both the promises and this psalm find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And one reason we know that is because this psalm is used again in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 5. Hebrews 1, 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What's beautiful about making these references both to Acts 4 and to Hebrews chapter 1 is that it is wonderful when an Old Testament passage is told to us exactly what it means. I know if you've ever read the Bible through, and I've been in your shoes before, it's easy to look at an Old Testament passage and it kind of just go right by us, right? We say kind of fly past our head. We don't know what that reference is to. Sometimes an Old Testament passage can be obscure, but other times a New Testament writer tells us exactly what is happening. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night in our class on the Holy Spirit. And let me make mention here as well, uh, the announcement was made about the ladies' class being pushed back. Uh, we're not canceling that, but one reason is that so, is so that we can finish our study on the Holy Spirit together into the new year, and then we'll begin the ladies' class. But we've been talking about Acts chapter 2 a lot, especially on, on Wednesday night. And in Acts chapter 2, remember that Peter makes the statement this is that which the prophet Joel said. I mean, nobody has to scratch their head anymore. Peter says it so plainly. Hey, this is what Joel was talking about. And in Acts chapter 4 as well, those who are gathered there are saying, this is what David is talking about. It doesn't have to be obscure. We don't have to sit around in groups and have coffee and say, well, I'm just not sure what David was meaning there. The New Testament points to it and tells us that we're talking about the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So, what does this psalm then teach us about Jesus and his enemies? The title of the lesson is The Fate of Faith's Enemies. What does this lesson tell us about Jesus and his opponents or his enemies? If you have an outline from the bulletin in front of you, you'll notice that everything starts with the letter A this morning. And let's notice, first of all, the adversaries. What does this psalm teach us about the adversaries? This psalm opens with a picture of adversaries surrounding Israel. If you turn back there a moment ago to Psalm chapter 2, it begins with a picture of enemies surrounding Israel. Now, as the apostles in Acts chapter 4 referenced Psalm 2 in their response to the Jewish opposition of Jesus, we kind of see this picture, right? David is saying there's enemies all around us, and the apostles are saying, well, there's Jewish opposition all around us. Then it's safe to say that this text was intended as a general picture of unbelievers, of unbelievers who would cause trouble, who would sometimes surround believers. So what does this picture reveal? Four other things here about these adversaries. Number one, their power. Their power. In terms of numbers in Psalm 2, they are portrayed as the heathen nations, the Gentiles, and the people. This is their power in terms of sheer number. They've got a large group. Number two, the second word there is position. 
we not only notice their power, but also their position. What positions do they hold? Well, the psalmist says they hold the position of kings. They hold the position of rulers. They hold the position of judges of the earth. In verses 2 and 10 of Psalm chapter 2, here's the point of these first two things. You know it and I know it. Unbelievers almost always hold a majority. That's what we can know about the enemies of Christ and the enemies of God. Unbelievers almost always hold the majority. I, I think Keith may have said it in his prayer. He talked about the dark world around us, and that's true. It's absolutely true. But we should not ever think that we are the first people to ever feel that way. Oh, I know that it's, I know that it's all around us. I know that I carry it in my pocket all, all the time just about during the day. I know that we have such access to so many things that are against the word of God, but how dare we ever think that we're the only ones. David here is saying, I'm surrounded by the enemies. They have the power. They have the position. Let's notice thirdly then here their protest because they make a protest as well. In verse number three of the second psalm, they consider service to God to the anointed king as a form of bondage or a form of slavery. Why do we know that? Because in verse 3, they speak both of chains and cords. They speak of chains and cords. The internet today, unfortunately, is filled with deconversion stories told by atheists who believe that they have found freedom. It's a very popular thing. I don't know how much, how many of you use social media very much, but there's not a day that sometimes goes by, and I follow a lot of religious people and, and religious speakers and those kinds of things, but I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't open my social media, and there's a story of someone sharing about a person who says they have deconstructed their faith. They've deconstructed everything they've always thought or heard about the Word of God or the church. And when they talk about that, what they're saying is, I deconstructed from God and now I've found freedom. I have broken free from the chains and the cords and the bonds and now I've found freedom. Kind of like a, a person who says, well, you know, if I'm married as a man and I have infidelity, well, that's just freedom, right? People look at marriage, faithfulness in marriage as a chain. They look at faithfulness to God as a cord or a bond. And the militant people of this world, and by the way, that's a lot, what a lot of this is, militant people who won't stop posting about things and sharing and reminding us, but the militant people won't rest until all people embrace this supposed freedom. Freedom from one spouse. Freedom from the rules that God has put in place. That is their protest that they want freedom from that. But let's notice number four then, their plot. Simply put, in verse number three, by any means necessary, they will break and cast away the rule of the anointed one. From the onset of the psalm, though, here in Psalm 2, the psalmist knows that this plot, this idea, it's a vain thing. Is that not what he says there at the end of the first question in verse number one? He knows, the psalmist knows, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same thing that Paul would share in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, that one day every knee will bow. It's a vain thing to try to protest and to plot to break away, but that's what they're thinking. 
In fact, the Hebrew parallelism here forces a comparison between the idea of the plot and rage. What unbelievers envision as a plot, a reasoned plot, as we've already talked about, ending in their inevitable freedom is nothing but a fruitless, raging uproar. Verse 1, that's the New American Standard version there. So how can the psalmist then be so sure that these powerful, protesting, plotting adversaries will come to nothing? How can he be so sure? And our second word this morning is, it's because of the Almighty. It's because of the Almighty. In verse 4 of Psalm 2, the scene shifts from the earth to the heavens where an almighty God sits. And what does he do? Did you hear it a moment ago? Did you notice? What does that almighty do in heaven? He laughs. Laughs? God's laughing at us? That doesn't seem like what God should do. We talk about how much God loves the world. It doesn't seem like he would laugh at people. And the point is, of course, he's not thankful that people are lost. He's not happy and rejoicing and laughing that people are choosing their own way. But this is a picture of the foolishness of man, of the fools, we might even say, who think that they can scoff and laugh at God and get away with it. That's what they're doing. And so God is laughing at them. He's not happy that anybody is lost. No, not at all. But he's realizing or painting the picture for us of a couple things. Number one, that rebellion is sin. Don't mistake the picture here. Rebellion is sin. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Not only is rebellion sin, but number two, we know that sin brings forth death, right? Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the payment. We've told some of you, but our, our oldest this week or the last couple of weeks has gotten his first job and, and earned his first paycheck, and he got it on Friday, and he said, well, here's the payment for what I, I've earned. You know, I've worked and I've received money. That's the payment. Well, when we sin, the payment is death. Rebellion is as sin, and sin brings forth death. We also know from Ezekiel chapter 18 in several places. Ezekiel 18, 23, Ezekiel 18, 32. But we also know that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So don't mistake the picture. God's not happy and rejoicing that people are going to remain lost. God's laughter is simply a poetic picture of the foolishness, foolishness of anyone thinking they have a sufficient power or a sufficient position or a sufficient plot to defeat God. Notice here also that God doesn't even have to raise a finger. God doesn't even have to raise a finger to defeat his adversaries. What does verse 5 say? Psalm 2 in verse 5. Then... He shall speak. He doesn't even have to lift a finger. He shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. He speaks and already they find themselves terrified. This is because while they are mighty, oh, don't get me wrong, the people of our world today who hold power, whether it be the president or the politicians, the senators, or whoever it might be, they do hold some power. The people in the second psalm, they held power. While they are mighty, God is almighty. He has all power. He has all strength. And he is the source of all strength. 
So in verse number 6, when God declares that he has set his anointed king on his holy hill, there is no one. There is no one who can change that. It doesn't matter how much money you have or what position of power you hold. Even as we call our leader very often, the leader of the free world. That's great. But you cannot touch what God has done as the Almighty in setting his anointed king on his holy hill. Christian brothers and sisters, we need to realize this, that Jesus is on an eternal throne. Many people are thinking about Jesus and his birth this time of year. And as the angel is speaking to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, he talks about this son who shall be born, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. No force in heaven or earth will or can dethrone him. Not the masses mocking Christianity on social media. Not Hollywood. Not the politicians. Not militant atheists who want us to feel differently. No one can change what God has done through his anointed. Which leads us to our third word this morning, which is the anointed. The anointed, which is Jesus Christ. Now, through inspiration, David made a connection which could not and did not find his fulfillment, its fulfillment in him. God told David through the prophet Nathan, we already read it a few moments ago, he told David through Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He would be someone of whom God would say in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, I will be his father. So go back to Psalm 2. The psalmist therefore wrote in verse number 7, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So David was a child of God, as all the faithful are. We, are a child, we can be a child of God, but the New Testament makes it abundantly clear, abundantly clear that God has only one begotten son. As we know from passages like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And because we know that, we also know that Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 7 is about Jesus. It's about the anointed. It's about Jesus Christ. We even know that because in Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, Paul at Antioch says, God hath fulfilled this saying, referring to God's promises to Israel, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We already made mention a few moments ago of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. All of these passages are reminding us that it's not about the angels, it's not about David, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. What God offered the anointed, Jesus, when God offered the, or what God offered the anointed, which is the heathen nations, the Gentiles, the uttermost parts of the earth, from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8, Jesus now has. 
Psalm 2.8 there, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20 through 20, when Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me. This was hard for the Jews to hear, though, right? It was hard for the Jews to swallow that the Gentiles would have access to salvation. But amazingly, even in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, to the church at Thyatira, Jesus not only claims that he has this power, but he quotes Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2 in verse 9 as evidence that he also promises that the faithful can share in it. We see the fate of faith's enemies. We see that we don't have anything to fear from reason. We see that those who would puff themselves up up and try to laugh at God will be put in their place. Maybe not in that time, maybe not in our day, but God is the Almighty. He has established His anointed, and the adversaries will not stand. So hopefully you still have one word there left in your outline, and that is, let's think in conclusion about the advice. The advice. And if you have your bulletin and you're making notes, write out beside the advice, you can write out, Psalm 2 and verse 12. The advice is simple, and the advice is also found in this psalm. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The advice is simple. Kiss the son. Can we kiss literally Jesus? Of course not. But we can worship him. We can kiss him in worship and adoration. It's been a while, I think, since we've looked at the word, but the Greek word in the New Testament for worship that's used most often is proskuneo, which means literally to kiss forth. To, we blow a kiss, if you will, to God in our worship. That's the idea, which also paints that picture for us that worship is an active thing. How dare we sometimes come and sit and act like we're disinterest, disinterested in what's going on. Our worship should be our blowing a kiss, proskuneo, to God, worshiping Him. And the advice is to kiss the Son, to worship and adore Him, because His opponents will perish, but all those who put their trust in Him will be blessed. The kings, the judges, those who are in charge will be judged. They think they're wise, but they will be instructed by God. And the advice for those who want to be blessed is to worship the anointed, to worship the Son. You see, faith has no reason to fear reason, to fear a logical discussion. We can look at passages like Psalm 2, and we can put things together. We can look at the New Testament and see God's plan. He had a plan. From the very beginning, He had a plan. For His people in the Old Testament, the Jews, and for me and you in the world today. The question is, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to suffer his wrath with the kings and the nations? Or do you want to be blessed? If you want to be blessed, the psalm concludes with the very simple instruction, put your trust in him. We're about to sing a song of encouragement here in just a moment. And the question comes to you, would you put your trust in him? 
If you're here this morning and you've never done that by, by becoming a Christian, we sing to encourage you that you would obey his simple plan of salvation. You've heard the word this morning, and you've probably heard it before today as well, but would you believe it? Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you believe that, then surely you would be willing to repent of your sins, changing your mind about the way that you're living, which would then allow you to change your life, repenting of sin. Once you do that, you're ready to confess Jesus as Lord. You can do that this morning. You can do it as soon as possible. If you really believe that he is who he said he is, then you should be willing to confess that before an audience such as this. And then you can be baptized for the remission of your sins. It's in baptism that you come in contact, contact with the blood of Christ that washes away sin. And you can be added to the church by the Lord. Then you can begin to live faithfully. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that in times past. You've been obedient to the plan of salvation, but you'd like to come back to him. You realize that your trust has not been in him and you need to maybe repent of sin. Confess that before him ultimately, but maybe even before this audience. Coming back to him through repentance, confession, and prayer so that you can be faithful once again and on the path to heaven above. You see, God places before us this choice. Would you be blessed? Would you trust in him? You can do so this morning by becoming a Christian or coming back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.